Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it's features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. I watched Sir Clive Woodward speak at an investment conference and I was mesmerized. He is the man best known for taking England from an also-ran number six position in world rugby to the number one. That's impressive. But it was the detail he went into and the simple read across into the world of business and investing which struck me. Sir Clive has developed a management philosophy which is equally applicable to business and to sport. His attention to detail is incredible, and some of the initiatives he introduced to the management of the team really made me think. When I was preparing for the podcast and listening to past interviews and reading his books, I was amazed at some of his insights. In this interview, he explains why the conventional wisdom of having a Monday morning detailed analysis and breakdown of that failed pitch the previous week and a celebration in a pub when the pitch is successful, why those should be turned on its head. He explains why he goes to the pub when he loses a contract and dissects why he won. He also explains why he decided that England should change shirts at halftime, why that improved performance and how other teams copied the initiative. 
and he explains his unusual method of deriving these small gains, the 101% improvements, as he calls them. He explains how winning teams are made up of winning individuals and how he can use his DNA of a champion philosophy to improve everyone's performance, from the forklift driver in the warehouse to the multinational CEO. The bottom line is that you really can learn a lot from successful people in sport. This is a fantastic exposition, and I'm sure every listener is going to enjoy it, even if you don't know what rugby ball looks like. So, Clive, thank you very much. I'm so excited to be talking to you. When I said to a couple of friends that I was excited to be having you in the podcast, everyone, without exception, said to me, hang on, why are you interviewing a rugby coach? What's that got to do with business? Can you please explain the very deep similarities between sport and business and what a winning sports coach can teach business people? Well, I guess, Stephen, if I had uh, five pounds every time someone said business is different than sport, I'd be a very wealthy guy. Uh, I, I think, first of all, I'm probably one of the few people who've sort of, you know, done done both at a, at a pretty high level. I think people obviously still see me as uh, I'm, I'm best known for winning the World Cup with England in 2003, which I'm hugely proud of and the whole team involved in that. But prior to all that, you know, I had sort of 16 years in business. And when I say in business, when I left university, I worked for Xerox for nearly eight years, including five in Australia, where I was a sales director based out of Sydney in, in and then when we came back from Sydney, I set up my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned with Xerox Finance that I also ran for eight years. When I say small, it was like sort of, we had 10 people at our height. So my kind of business background was a big multinational in Xerox, which I loved. They were fantastic for me they, in terms of their sales training and management training. But then I think most importantly, my, my small leasing and finance company, they also ran for eight years. Then, you know, rugby went professional in 1996. And for whatever reason, I was offered the job as the first full-time professional rugby coach. So reason I give you that brief background, when I talk about business and sports, it, it is the same thing. My definition of business is, is quite simple, delivering results through people. And I repeat it, delivering results through people. That's what I do if I'm coaching a rugby team and delivering results through people. When my role in the Olympics was fantastic, delivering results through people. And definitely when I'm running my businesses, you're delivering results through people. So it's, it's, there's absolutely no difference. And I'll argue to the cows at home when people say it's different, it has to be different, it's not. You know, I'd like to think, you know, that the famous soccer coaches over here at the moment, Mourinho, Klopp, um, Pep Guardiola, if they were put in charge of a business, they'd be successful. They know how to get things done through people. You just, the key thing is being passionate about your subject. If you're passionate about the job you're doing, your, your business, it's exactly the same thing. And people seem to think it's different. It's absolutely no different at all. And hence, I'm very happy speaking to yourself and business people and investment people. And I'm very happy speaking to you know Mourinho and Klopp and Jurgen Jurgen Robler. You know, it's it's I do it because there's no there's no difference. And it's funny because I think with investing, there's an even closer parallel, isn't there? Because in sport, there's a lot of randomness that can influence your results. And obviously, in if you're investing in the stock market, there's a huge amount of the the world's a very complicated place. Both suffer from that randomness, which means that you actually have to prepare more carefully, and the process becomes very important. And learning mistake from your mistakes becomes very important. I know those are elements in your philosophy. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you would apply the lessons from sport into, say, an investment team or a business team? Well, I think the first thing, what I, what I really learned from, um, especially my time in my small leasing company, you know, when I say small, I think we had 10 people at a height, or maybe it was eight, eight or 10. But my favorite saying, which I think throws people, is, you know, great teams made of great individuals. And I repeat that again. Great teams made of great individuals. 
you know, be very clear. I'll, I'll never, ever underscore the importance of teamwork and working together and collaboration, all these lovely words. But I think it is a secret to running successful companies, businesses, investment companies. You get every individual work at his or her optimal level. The team stuff becomes a lot easier to actually do. So I make no bones about it as if I'm chief executive of a company or I'm the head coach for a rugby team. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make every individual on my team better. That's my number one job. If I can make you better at what you do, in other words, I invest time, effort, money, resources into every individual, you'll get it back in bucket loads. And, you know, you, you can't kind of BS people. They, they'll, they'll know if you say you're going to do this. And, I, and, and so I look at a team of people. I don't, want to teach, I don't want to treat them as a team. I want to treat them as individuals. I want to have individual plans of how it can make you better. You get every individual really then working at their optimal level and improving and then sharing new thoughts, new ideas, new, new knowledge. Um, it's a great thing to be involved in. Hence, you know, I love working in business because there's, there's no there's no different. Sport, everyone thinks is different. It's no different at all. There's different results through people, but it's for every individual, especially a rugby team. Those who don't follow rugby, rugby is probably one of the most challenging teams, uh, sports to coach because it's so position-specific. Take a football team, fundamentally they're all footballers, probably all fundamentally the same size, the same weight. Rugby is very different. You've got massively tall people, you've got huge stocky people in front row, you've got fast people. It's like an American football team. You know, there's there's very different sorts of people. But my number one job is to make every individual better. And that's what I go about doing. And that's what I definitely learned from business because my small company, you know, we had no hierarchy. It was just like we're a, a leasing broker. And we were sort of you know, taking on sometimes some pretty big, you know, financial companies in terms of what we're doing. Uh, but we used to win because of our people, and that was what it's about. And I'm trying to make every individual better. And what particular skills do you emphasize when you're working with an individual in in a business environment? Because the thing that people will say is, okay, so you're you're coaching a rugby team. You've got a pool of 50, 30 people, fifteen people on the pitch. They're all elite athletes, so you can spend invest a lot of time with them. When you go to a bigger environment, it's not really possible to do it on an individual basis, is it? It's totally possible. I mean, most teams, uh, yeah, most hierarchies, bits are built like a, you know, from the top down. The average team size of most people has been 10 and 12 people. You know, if, if you're managing 100 people, I would say it's not going to be very effective, but most teams are broken down. So I'd say to any leader, your number one job is to make sure you're, you're trying to improve every single individual. But the, the, the key thing, Steve, which I think you're getting to is this could be a two-way process. You know, I'll be sitting down with, with my team uh, and really eyeballing them you know, on a regular basis. You know, I'm going to invest a lot into you. But I want to know what are you going to invest back into me and the team. So it's going to be a two-way process, and, and let's be let's face it with, with with technology today and all these all these information flying around. There's no excuse for somebody not really taking part in this. So in other words, I'm going to try and make you better, but I want to know you're trying to make yourself better. So it doesn't matter what you know. If I'm talking to a, a forklift truck driver, I'm trying to make that forklift truck driver the best in the world. I'm talking to someone sitting on reception. I'm trying to make that person the best they possibly can be. So this is all about improvement. So it's not about having the people right at the top of the tree, the elite rugby player, the elite athlete. It's every single person you try to make them better. And really, when you when you speak to people properly, they all want to improve. I've no, I've never met anybody who wouldn't rather like do their job better and improve themselves. But it's got to be two way process. If I think this is only a one-way process, there's going to be a fallout. If I really feel you're actually putting in the work and you're trying to prove yourself as well, life will become very, very good, and I think you'll move on. So there's no difference. It's not about having the very, very best, or it's often said in sport, you're lucky because you can just drop people, move people on. You can't really, because your team is only so many people. You can't just keep chucking people in and out. You've got to get the best out of them, and that's what I found you can do if you know they're really improving themselves as well. And what I love to be is surprised. If someone comes to me, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? I'm doing this. I've just read this, read that. That's the person I want working for me in sport or business. When you were the, the England coach, you used to invite the players to your house. Why did you do that? Um, again, it was no different. It's like saying, 
you know, in my small business, we had 10 people, they all came to my house. You know, I used to have evening dinners there. Uh, I wasn't trying to get friendly, friendly with them. I just thought it's a nice thing to do. I think also it gives them a lot of trust in you. They know where you are. They know where you live. They get to meet your wife, your children. They get to, I'm just a normal, normal person. Um, and, I, and, and, and they come. I always ask them to come with their girlfriends. Uh, some rugby players that come with their parents sometimes. Just gives me an opportunity to really see them in a different way and to have these conversations like this, uh, not in a kind of a business situation. And I, I, I really enjoyed that. And I, I think there's a lot, a lot to that. And Jane, my wife, was, was fantastic at this. She, she, I mean, she, everyone said she picked the, the rugby team, which she probably did. And, um, you know, she was really, really good at actually really engaging with, with wives, girlfriends, because also you, you do find out a lot about them. You know, they're normal people. They're all going through great things, but also real sadness. You know, almost an exception. All the players I've worked with, they're going through down times as well, you know, including deaths in the family or parents and children even, you know, so you get to know them well. I think if you do that, I think you really can push. You know, this is a two-way thing. and I'm, I'm real. I'm, I'm here for keeps. I'm not some mystery guy who you meet at eight in the morning and leaves at six at night. I'm a 24-7 person. And I didn't do it. Let's say I didn't do it regularly. It wasn't, you know, we, we just on a regular basis. Just and it, sometimes they come on their own. Sometimes a couple of players would come. So it wasn't just always around. But I used to do it on a just regular basis. Mainly because I wanted to chat them about something. And I just found it doing it good in this kind of home setting, kind of set a good scene, a good standard. But it, it, I wouldn't say it worked for everyone. It just works for me, you know. And also I said to them so many times, and the the rugby team, and I said, look, here's my address. Here's my postcode. You know where I live. I want to absolutely be clear. If you've ever got any real issues, what I'm doing. I want you to feel you can ring me up and come and see me at home. And that kind of just diffused it. Over the eight years, Stephen, of coaching England, I'd probably had four players rang me, only four ever. And every single one of those was a personal problem. Nothing to do with rugby, to do with a serious personal problem that they all want to help with and want to speak to Jane and wife about and what to think. And, and only four, four people. But they knew where I lived. And it, it just kills it dead because you, people say, well, you know, often, well, I, I wasn't involved, wasn't consulted. I said, well, you, you know the, the, the ground rules. If you didn't like was <laughs> come and see me. You know what it was, but you didn't do that. So obviously you did know. And I think it just creates a team bond. I think it's important for the leader to be, you know, not, my, my door's not always open, be very clear. They have to come ring me up and say, I want to come see you. There's no knocking on your door. But it kind of kind of worked for me. And I think you'll find the players who played for me you know, kind of trusted what I was about, you know, that they may have saved certain things, but they just, they would always say, well, you, you cannot deny he threw everything at this, you know, and we knew where he was, we knew how he was operating, we knew what to actually do. And I think that can work in any business. I really do believe that. And I did that when I was small. Because, you know, I, I often say, you know, I was lucky enough to play for England at a very high level, played for England 21 times, played for British Lions, British and Irish Lions, I should say. Um, it was fantastic, and I loved every, every minute of it, you know. And but running the business was no different at all. I loved every business, every minute of running my business as well. So it did dealing with people. And that's that's how we did it. I'm just interested about this that the players would come to you. I know it didn't happen very often, but I should explain. Rugby is a game where the players are are playing for their clubs, and then the national team doesn't pay them; they're paid by the club. Why did they come to you and not to their own club manager? I mean, I was the England coach. So, you know, I'd expect them to do both, really, if they wanted to. But a lot of people don't work that way. I'd, I'd have no problems if someone said, well, I wouldn't do that. I'd never bring a player to my house. or I want to I, I want to keep work and um, business totally separate. I, I can understand that. It's not what I do. I, I do the opposite. I engage with my, my wife about this, engage with my kids about this. They understand what's going on. Finally, that's the way, for me, it's the best way of actually doing it. Um, and it, it, it kind of works. You know, and they <clears> say, the players, there's, there's nowhere they can go. They can say, well, I'd, you know, I wish you told me that was, if you got a problem, call me. You know, if it's a real problem, come and see me. You know, yeah. 
And that just kills everything dead. I mean, it, it's just the way it works. But that's what I did my leasing company. So we had 10 people and I just found it was nice to have people around. You know, once you know, every couple of weeks, whether someone rounds, it wasn't all the time. It's just oh, you know, of course. sort of Friday now, evening for a beer or something. Hot hands, winning streaks. I don't know if you believe in them. I think investors do. One of my partners, I think he spent three months, he didn't change his cufflinks because he'd some convinced that these were lucky cufflinks. Investors... When you're enjoying a winning streak, everything becomes much easier because you're ahead for the year, you feel confident, you can take more risk, you make more money. You're always ahead of the curve. If you're behind, it's much harder because you can't afford to lose. Can you just talk a little bit about this? Because what happens when in sport, you're on a, a losing streak? How do you correct yourself? How do you get back on track? Do you? I mean, first of all, do you believe in this hot hands? Oh, listen, I really believe in it. I mean, hot, hot hands is, is is in sporting terms just just winning. It, it's you know, if you're winning, you know, game, game, game. Keeping that going is just fantastic. You can be quite you know um, entrepreneurial, radical kind of business terms in terms of how you're playing. You take more risks, and you can you can do that. Um, but that's why winning is everything. I've, you know, there's a thing around in sports which I don't agree with. It's all about performance. You've, take care of the performance, the winning will take care of itself. I don't believe in that. I believe in actually winning. I think winning, if you're in a winning platform, you can move forward, move forward, move forward. And I have this uh, term, Stephen, uh, called the, the Monday morning syndrome. What I was really guilty of, and I learned, I learned to do this, really sport taught me this better than business. What I was really guilty of in my small leasing company was that, you know, without being too flippant about it, you know, when things are going well, you hot hands, you call it, don't you? hot hands, you're on a winning streak. What tends to happen, everyone down the pub Friday night, celebrate, champagne, beers are open, life's great. What happens when you lose the big deal? It's all going wrong. Eight o'clock, Monday morning, everybody in, massive overreaction to losing or things not going wrong. That was me, and I was really guilty of that, which I look back at now and just shake my head. What I learned, especially through sports, to completely flip that. In other words, when you lose a game, or you lose a big deal, a big investment deal, you've not become a bad team overnight. Don't overreact, down the pub, have a few beers, chill out, basically. Conversely, when you're on a winning streak, hot hands, winning, everyone in Monday morning, 8 o'clock, why do we win? What do we do? What are the learnings? Because I think people tend to focus far too much more on why we lost the deal than why we won the deal. And what we became really good at with the rugby team especially was, and we had some really tasty meetings on these Monday mornings because, you know, everyone wanted to win and we could really analyze everyone's performance in the team. And we used to pull people out and all this stuff. And it was really, it was fun. I loved it. But he got all quite, he got heated quite heated time. Just like Monday morning, eight o'clock, and everyone's getting really upset with each other because what they're thinking, crikey, thank God we won this game. <laughs> Imagine if we lost this game. Mm. But that's that's the scenario. And I think I think you learn from both. That's what I, I guess I'm trying to say. I think you can definitely learn from losing. I think that's that's key. You got to you got to examine it. But crikey, you can really learn from winning. I mean, really learn from winning. Why did we win? And can we go to the next stage? Can we increase everything by one percent? Can we get our margins up in, in business terms? Can we move to whole whole new level? And that was really exciting. You know, we just you know you just you know, beating the All Blacks, say, and the All Blacks being you know the number one team in the world, just beating the All Blacks. We played great. Wow, right? How can we do even better? What they'll be thinking? Well, we'll sit on our, our laurels here. No, we're now going to really take this apart. How can we be even better? We need to change the team. And it's fantastic. I mean, if you're in that hot hands position winning, so no, there's nothing better. It's fantastic. But also, you, you've got to understand it doesn't happen like that. There are big losses. You know, I do a, a whole series of kind of lectures about success from setbacks. How do you handle that? The key thing is preparing for it. You've got to make sure that when the setback comes or you lose the big deal, whatever you call it, you know clearly in your mind how we're going to handle this. It's not something on the spot. You've got to crack what we're going to do here. You've got to have a real president in place for handling the down times as well as the good times. How do you prepare for losing? Because it's a psychological thing, isn't it? I mean, you want to have a winning mindset. And sure. if you start talking about losing, people go, oh, well, hang on a second, we can lose. 
how do you mentally prepare for losing and how do you how do you do it without people losing confidence yeah it's 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 a great question it's it's something you've got to um, discuss with your your team and it's just getting the balance right because i remember doing a you know, a serious keynote speech to a bunch of coaches for whoever it was and i started talking about this and i could just see them all almost put the pens down because they're going come on you you can't as a coach you can't talk about losing or setbacks that's so negative and i'm going you can because it's going to happen you name me one person in this room who's not had a big setback or a big loss or got five or whatever. And the, the key thing about like everything is preparing for it. So you've got to prepare for setbacks. Not go over the top about it, but you've got to be very clear. What has to happen if we lose this game? We lose a big investment deal. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle it? And then the more you talk about it, and the more you document it and really write it down. I mean, re-document it, really write these things down. Everyone on the team knows. The more you actually realize, well, actually, let's make sure that doesn't happen. Because you know, it's not actually very nice what we're about to go through because you've got to prepare for it. But if it does happen, crikey, then you, you know, life's going to go on, hopefully. There'll be Monday morning, there'll be next deal, next game. But you've got to handle it well. I think where people get into trouble is when there's no preparation, you get caught absolutely cold, and then you make the wrong decisions. And this is all about what, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this, what I call teacup. It's thinking correctly under pressure. And losing a big deal, investment deal, losing losing a big game, losing anything is you're un, you're under pressure. How you handle that pressure is a sign of a champion team, a champion individual. But to me, it's about planning for it. What annoys me when in, in all walks of life, you know, we've just gone through COVID. Clearly, we just weren't prepared for this, you know. And you think the people in power, responsibility for our health and learning and education would have had this covered you know, from a pandemic point of view. It shouldn't be that difficult to predict. This could happen. What are we going to do? And clearly we weren't, we weren't prepared for it. Not, not just our country, the whole world wasn't prepared for it. So mm. when I say it's no one's fault, it's, it is people's faults because you've got a World Health Organization. You think there'd be all these in, in place, like almost a doomsday scenario. What happens is happens. And we weren't, and we got caught. So this is about preparing and it's about process. Yeah, definitely. So that's very, there's a very good analogy to investing because investing is all about process. I'm going to just take you back just this question about, so you've, you've had a setback. How do you recover from it? Because, you know, if you're in a sporting environment, you you were up in the in the first game and you give it away in the second half. Yeah. The next game, you lose. The third game, you're down at halftime. I mean, what do you say to the team to make them believe in themselves so that they can go out and win in the second half? I mean, how does it? How do you motivate them? How well, it's, you... it's not a case of motivation, Steve. It's a case of at a top level, you have all these... I promise you, I've you know I've been to the very top in coaching, won a rugby world cup, which no one in this part of the world has ever done before. So I've been to the top of the tree, but I promise you, I've never given a Churchillian speech or some you know wonderful beat in the drums. It's process, and you've got to be you know in that half time you talk about. You know, half time is really important. A game of rugby, you have forty minutes each way, then you have like a fifteen minute break in the middle. That fifteen minute is absolutely key. What you say in that that period of time, or how you handle that moment in time, uh, will win you the next half or or lose you the next half. You know, and I've I've looking back now, what's happened at half time. Sometimes I've been really pleased what we've done. Sometimes we should have done actually better. But um, I'm I'm preparing for ever, ever scenario because what's happened has happened. The first half's over. We're winning. We're losing. We're drawing. What we say then at half time makes a big big difference. To what we're about to do. But again, you've got to prepare in your head. What if we are losing by 20 points? What if we're winning by 20 points? What's going to happen? So you're actually preparing, and then you need to prepare better. It's not instinctive. Even the most experienced people, I don't believe in instinct. I think it comes from your learning. You know, there's a great quote from Nelson Mandela, which um, I've seen my name attached to a few times. I always smile, but it wasn't me. It was Nelson Mandela. You know, it's, and it's the best quote I ever used to anyone. I never lose, I either win or I learn. And it's the best quote ever in terms of sport or business. I never lose either win or I learn. And the learning is everything. So 
the more games you have, the more experienced investment person you become, the more you've learned, the more you can apply your experience to that situation. But you, you're applying your experience and learning. Hence what I said before about a two-way process. I need everyone in my team learning all the time. I need them coming back to me with new thoughts, new ideas. So have a look, have a look at this. If you're doing that, then you know, when the situation comes, that half-time meeting which you described, you'll you'll make the right calls and make the right decisions and handle it properly. And be very clear, sometime, and I've thought this through, the only one time I really have thrown teacups around was in the World Cup in the quarterfinal. We played Wales. We were red-hot favourites to win, not only that quarterfinal of the World Cup, and we were losing half-time. We have just played the worst kind of rugby I've ever seen in the half. And I, I've, I've clearly thought about this. This is, you know, if we don't get this right, I'm not here talking to you 20 years later. <laughs> and it's as big as that. Your life's on the line. And I literally chucked things around. And, they were, and I had to scare the living daylights out of these players. Because unless we start playing properly and take it, not take it seriously, but we're taking it deadly seriously. But unless we start playing properly, we're we're on the plane and we're we're going to be ridiculed the rest of our lives, and we would have been. And it literally everyone, I just screaming and shouting. It was everything we planned went out the window. But I was doing it. I knew exactly what I was doing. I was doing it exactly for that that moment about what we're actually doing. And you know, Martin Johnson, the captain, was fantastic. He he was screaming, shouting as well. It was just chaos, really. But it worked because we went out in the second half, played fantastically well. But we had to scare them, and it wasn't the time for logical. Let's let's do points one, three to four, like we <laughs> normally would do. It's normally like a really you know like a, a real cool, calm environment. This is where we are. But that one match uh, defined kind of my kind of career in coaching, and also defined all that teams because we lose that game. <laughs> as I say. No, no drama. I'm not here talking to you 20 years later. I'm, I don't know where I'd be. That's that's the scary thing. Well, I'm I'm, I'm pleased you won. So, um, in rugby or in in any team sport, you've got the half time. You don't have a half time in business. Would it be a good thing to have a half time period where you actually stop and think, okay, let's have a look at what we've done and how we move forward? And, and do you ever do that in any of your own businesses? Yeah, well, I think if if you don't have them, yes, create one, build one in, build one in. You know, in terms of, I can't exactly how to refer it in from from an investment point of view, but certainly from a, from a business point of view, that's almost like your regular meetings. It's just it's just stop and reset. Uh, I think the, the most the most important thing um, you know, is a great term out there at the moment in in terms of psychological safety. Mm. It's not just me, the leader. You need to know when you're having that half time. Are you really getting everybody's thoughts through? Is everyone confident putting their ideas and thoughts across to me, even if it's being critical of me as the leader of the team? That's absolutely fine. What you don't want is someone sitting there feeling intimidated, you know, worried about the repercussions, about saying, saying something. That's not a high-performing team, you know, and that's what I pride myself on. You know, all my businesses, my sports teams I've been involved in, that I pride myself on, on being a good listener as the leader and allowing people to, to have their say, even if it is. We, we create our various team rules around that. So then when you do have your half-time or your break, you've got to make sure there's no point just having a half-time just to kind of take a breather or have a cup of tea. You're getting information in from everybody. Where are we up to? Is everyone on, on the same page here? But be listening to what, what new thoughts and ideas are coming through. But how do you encourage people to step up and give those new thoughts? Because in, in the investing game, the most dangerous thing is groupthink. So you, you know, you, I mean, I don't really believe in making decisions by committee. And whenever I've been involved in that, it's been a disaster. But the, the problem is that it's very difficult to say, especially to the boss who in a fund is often the, the founder of the business, yeah, yeah. who's usually got a successful track record, which is why you're there. Very difficult to say to him, you're wrong. Have you got any tips for, for that, for making that environment open and collegiate? And yeah, I think first of all, Steve, I'm with you. I, I do not believe in group thinking. I am the leader of the team. I'm the head of the investment team or head of the rugby team. What I do believe in 
is without being too sycophantic about it, is 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 listening to people. I absolutely do believe the people sitting around that table, you know, especially don't forget the way I've been working with them, they're learning as well. You know, we'd have a serious fallout if you thought something and you weren't prepared to tell me to my face what, what you know, including Clive, you're wrong. I don't believe it. there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you have a good open debate about this, not not so much in a group situation, but a one-on-one situation. That's a healthy situation. Absolutely, it's healthy. But they they must know, and you must, you obviously clear them. End of the day, we'll have all the debate. Some stage, I'm going to make a decision. This is what we're going to do. But I've listened. And, you know, one of my, my big edocts is there's no such thing as a daft idea. Let me decide it was a daft idea. And what I think, the older you get, the more kind of, I say mature, I think that's the wrong word, but the more experience you get, maybe, that the more you, you do listen and you actually, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I always pride myself now in terms of things I do is pride myself on uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily the person with a good idea what I pride myself is listening getting people around me who I really do think are the top of the top of their game every single one of them and I'm going to listen and you know my favorite line is if it makes the boat go faster I will make sure that happens so I'm going to go you know that's a great idea if that's a good idea that's going to make you better investment decisions it's going to make win you more world cups gold medals and all this stuff that's your job as a leader I will make that happen by hook or crook I will make that happen Sometimes you've got to fall out with people above you to do that. But if you generally believe that's the right thing to do, you've got, you've got to do it. And that's, you know, again, one of my sayings is if, if it makes the boat go faster, we will do this. Don't matter if it's the tiniest margin, we will do this. And that's what I think I'm quite good at is getting things put in place and smashing through boundaries and, you know, um, orthodox thinking to make this all happen. And, I mean, you obviously are a good listener. What makes a good listener? you just got to listen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the obvious of being a good listener, but it, it helps a lot if you're listening to people you really like and trust and respect and you know they've done the hard yards or they're putting the hard yards in. So if I know someone's working for me has really gone away and studied, you know, you, you, you told me you'd read both my books and preparing for this or three books preparing for this, I'm going to listen to you, you know, because I'm going to say, okay, he's, he's done the work, he's done the hard yard or she has. So you listen to people you really kind of trust and respect. I'm not going to listen to everybody because I've got time to. But I do listen and I, you know, I like to think I surround myself with really good people, you know, in terms of business and sport. Again, it's such an, an obvious thing. You, you, know, you can never spend enough time, effort, money, dollars trying to hire the right people. You've absolutely got to do that. But it's the start and not the finish. That's, you know, mm. that's just the start of the process. You're in, they're in your team now. I want to do this two-way process I've spoken about. But I want to listen to them now. I want to say, you know, we've gone to all this effort to get you in. I want to listen to you. What are your thoughts and ideas? Even if I am the head chancho. I think that's a key skill. But everyone knows I'll make the final call. And the, I could have 10 people saying to me, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. If I don't agree with it, no, we're not going to do this. I'm going to go this way. I've listened to you, but we're going to do this way. And that's the way you've got to work. And that, so I totally agree. I don't, I don't agree with group mentality at all. But what I do agree is listening, but listening to the right people and not people who may be saying things for the wrong reasons. And when, you, when you've listened and you disagree and you go off in a different course, how do you take the people with you? That's all about the team, team ethics. They, they, they must know you, you've been in that position. They must respect your, not must, they will respect your position on this. But no, they've, they can't say we've not had our say. And let's now, you know, all get behind this decision. And that's, your, that's the job as a leader. You're not there to make popular decisions. You're there to make decisions that are going to win. And if you're in a winning position, life becomes quite good and you can have a lot of fun. It's not fun losing in anything. So... And, and, you know, you can't hide. That's the great thing about investment business and also sport is you can't hide there's a result. Yeah. You either be proved right or wrong. And if you get proved right more times than wrong, you tend to stay in your job. And if you don't, you probably won't be in a job. And they'll know if, you know, big, just big, that's a big call. You know, your what's it's on the line here. So and that's why we love it. But in the end, you know, and sometimes you go home and think I'm right at this. And you, you discuss it with one or two other people. 
but you know you're going to do this. And that's the, that's the great thing about it. But your team must know they've had their say. The team must know they've put their input in and and they say you, you, you learn then to, which which people you really kind of trust and listen to probably more than others because that's the person you know. They won't be saying this and there's a real reason. So let's explain this a bit more. And, and I think that's what psychological safety is all about and running good teams is all about. So the team may disagree with you, but they all go out united. What about the guy that says, that guy, that manager is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. A couple of people, when I said I was going to be interviewing you, said, ask him about the barracks room lawyer, the difficult player. Because you must have had quite a lot of prima donnas that you had to look after. I wouldn't call them prima donnas. Probably a bit of mavericks, these, these kind mm-hmm. of words. I mean, I like the word maverick. I regard myself as a maverick, I think. Um, I, quite, I like these people, you know, and I, I can name loads of them in sport. Um, would I employ them? Yes, absolutely. Because I, I want, you know, when I, when I employ Stephen, I'm trying to employ the most talented person. You know, I don't care what their background history is about being maybe awkward or not team players. I want to employ the most talented people. I'm confident in the way I work. As the team, they'll, they'll work with me properly. And the way to do that, as I said before, you know, I've never met any of these person, people who don't want to be really successful or work in successful teams, including investment bankers. You know, they, they want to be successful. And all I'm saying to them is, if we're going to be successful, I need it to be, be a two-way process. I, I will, I'll listen to your views. And I will listen to your views. Um, and not someone's going to agree with them, f- far from it. But I am going to listen. I need you to be, I need to know why you're making them. And don't try and make them just to try and catch me out or show everyone how tough you are or how big you are. That's not what it's about, because we're trying to run a team, and I want you to be even more successful than you already are. So I'm going to invest in you, as, as I said. Now, I've never had a problem with anybody like that, you know. And I've, you know, when you kind of win something like the Rugby World Cup and all, everyone seems to think it's this dream team meetings, everything's hunky dory. It's not. It's, it's it's a lively place. Like I'm sure any investment team meeting is or an investment floor. It's a lively old place because we want to win. You know, the ramifications of not winning are huge, and probably even more so in sport. The one thing I'd say about sport and business, you know, the, your business career hopefully will go on for quite a, quite a few years. Yeah, a long time. Your sporting career, and it's been like, it's like it's a few years. You've got a really short window. The, the, the worst thing happens to rugby players is they, they arrive and they think it's gone forever. You know, I've been there, done it, got the T-shirt. It doesn't. It goes on. You look back, you just can't remember it. It goes like that. So what I'm saying to them, to a man, let's throw the kitchen sink at this. Do not leave anything, anything on the table. And that's what they really understand. And I can talk like that because I, I played for England for five years in my life. But that went like that. It's nothing compared to your whole business career. So we're going to make sure we're going to throw everything out of this. And hence, they kind of get this. But, you know, it comes back to, I think, the leadership. They've got to trust the leader. They're going to be able to listen. But also, they've got to accept if I say, no, it's no, we're not doing that, we're going to do this way. When you started as the England manager, you, you set a goal of becoming the best team in the world, which <laughs> they, were, they were not quite there. They were a long way yeah, off yeah. that. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how you set such an ambitious goal and how do you calibrate it? And then what happens once you achieve it? It wasn't actually, it wasn't actually that, actually. The, it was close to that, but what, I, was, I had it even more emotive because, again, I was lucky enough to play for England, but looking back at my England career, that five years, it, we, we weren't very good. We, we never really got above six, seventh in the world. We never beaten all the top teams in the world. So I look back at my own playing career with a huge amount of regret, a huge amount of frustration, despite the fact it was great playing for England at Twickenham in front of 85,000 people and all this sort of stuff. But you look back, a huge amount of regret. So when I got the job... You know, and I think I was a pretty surprised choice and, you know, I had to make big, big calls to do it. When I got the job, you know, it really was a case of me looking in the mirror and going, it's time to put up or shut up. You know, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've been quite critical of England in terms of just the way we play. And I had this vision, and I remember saying this to players, and they all looked a bit scared for this. The, the whole, um, what's, the, what's the word, the, the, the whole mission statement, if you want to call it in business terms, 
I want to get 85,000 people on their feet at Twickenham going nuts by the way we're playing. And that was my, my, my vision because we'd never done that. England going at Twickenham, was a, England played a boring game. It wasn't that exciting to watch. I said, we're going to change a whole mindset here. We've got to change a whole mindset of a team. And I said, we, I'm going to get 85, we, we're going to get, not I, we are going to get 85,000 people on their feet. Not because they're fans of England, because of the way we're playing. I wanted to play the game totally different than any other team was playing in the world, you know. And I was able to do this because of my business background and my this kind of vision. But yeah, I mean, number one in the world was was what we eventually got to. But we got there because we played a way that was so fast, so dynamic. And I remember sitting around a couple of times at Twickenham as the coach, looking around the stadium and literally seeing 85,000 people on the feet going nuts by the way we're playing. It was so exciting. Exciting to be their coach. And that was really challenging because have that as your kind of top line. There's our goal. There's our mission statement, whatever you want to call it. How do we do that now? Whoa, that is a different, different kettle of fish. How we actually go about doing that. But that was a great, great goal. And it wasn't about, you know, I didn't want to put any number on it like, you know, number one team in the world. That wasn't what we're about. To win a World Cup wasn't what we're about. Can we play different than anybody else? Because I knew then that would give us a better chance of winning. And so it's all about winning, in my view. That's that's why I made these statements. But then how do you break that down? How do you actually do about that? And it comes back to, again, to every individual. You get these great individuals becoming superstar individuals, you know, in Olympic terms, having gold medals around the neck, the best in the world. You can achieve this, and we achieved it. It was fantastic, and that's that. But that's the my opening statement, and I could say that from a player, and I could also relate to the players because I, you know, obviously played for England, you know, done, done that, done that job, and said I was hugely frustrated, hugely annoyed looking back now because I can't change my age. That was my moment in time, and we didn't deliver. We didn't even try and deliver. So we're gonna, for better or for worse, we're gonna throw the kitchen sink at this, and to one-on-one meet. I probably have one more one-on-one meetings than any other coach I've ever seen. I like one-on-one meetings. I like talking, hence people come to my house, where I can really talk to them. But I'm a team coach, but I just know I've got to know, get, get to know every individual really, really well. Then I think the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. And that worked better than saying, we're going to win the World Cup. Yeah, much better. So I think winning the World Cup, it, that's almost too tangible. And it wasn't, it wasn't sort of, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know the right word in terms of marketing or branding, whatever you want to call it. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough. Winning the World Cup was, was one thing. To get 85,000 people on the feet going nuts by the way we're playing, that was far more emotive. Mm. Some, something we could do really quickly, by the way. So winning the World Cup was every four years, like in football, soccer World Cup. And it's very tangible, very sort of black and white, and that's why probably what they expect. They, they thought they'd expect someone like me to say. You know, that's what probably other previous coaches said, we're going to win the World Cup. And, you know, and it, it quite annoys me that because, you know, winning the World Cup could be four years away. Well, you know, how many people have a job for four years? I mean, that's rubbish. You know, we want we want some targets that are going to happen this week, next week, immediately. That's going to build into that situation where we think we've got a team that can win a World Cup, and that emotive of about eighty five thousand being on the feet was I, I really I really love that. I still still love it. Still oh, gives great. It gives me goose, goosebumps now because you've never seen that. The English, I mean, I'm English to a fault. We are hopelessly conservative and stuck in our ways, and you know, we don't like we talk about change thinking and all this stuff, but we're hopeless at it. Hopeless at it. We like we like things in order. I wanted to create this team that wasn't, you know, things in order. They didn't things that we'd already done. They did things that were totally different. And we and we did. And the players were brilliant. They they loved. It. I was so lucky. Had some amazing gifted players, but they're real, they're real strength, led by Johnson, Martin Johnson, who's this great guy, the Leicester, the Leicester Tigers captain. He he played in the toughest position, probably the best player I've ever coached. He got this. He got this idea of you know team room, people talking, input playing this way that's different, you know. And he was one of the big guys, and he was fantastic. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. Do you have any experience in business of setting an objective like that? Because it, business, the objectives are generally very measurable. I mean, I suppose you can measure how many people are standing up in the stands, but 
Um, do you have any analogies in business that you? Is it, it's quite quite difficult to think of a of a similar. Yeah, but that's where you should just think about. I mean, the, in the business I've been in, been involved in, um, this, I guess the small leasing and finance company was looking back now. I left. I left Xerox. I think at the time, you know, the big thing we loved doing was always taking on the big boys. Yeah. When I say this almost deal by deal, we'll be up mm. against. You know, we're, we're in a. You know, because what uh, the leasing broke, we we basically trying to make work working with computer companies. So they would be selling their equipment and software. We would be financing that deal. So we'd get the the, the end user credit cleared and all this sort of stuff. And we got some pretty big deals. But we're a broker, so we're taking a margin. So we're always a little bit more expensive than, you know, the, the Barclays of the world and Lombard North Central and these these guys. So it really was the same sort of thing now. How you know, how come that's they're the deals we wanted to do? That's what became really, really exciting. And what what we learned really, really quickly was that yeah, people do buy on price, but they buy on people. Because there's no, absolutely no doubt people do business with people. Yeah. So we, you know, that was the whole philosophy of the, it's called sales finance and leasing the, the company. So it was all about people. But I, I guess what we're, we're saying, that was when we got really excited. Can we take on, can we beat the, the big banks? I can't remember saying, I wish I could, but I can't remember exact saying like 85,000 being on the feet going nuts. But we're certainly saying let's target the really big deals and the big boys, which no one thought we could win because they thought it was all down to price. And it's not, it wasn't down to price. It's funny, is that in, the first podcast we published, I had um, John Armitage, a very, very successful, not that well-known hedge fund manager, and we we're talking about company cultures, and he was citing Ryanair. And Michael Leary is an amazing guy. And, um, you know, I used to be an airline analyst when I was in, in, on the south side, and I remember the, the memos were legendary. So O'Leary would send a memo around, and he said, you're not allowed to charge your mobile phone. Charge your phones, yeah. In office, yeah. and of course, so the, the culture became you know one of relentless cost cutting. Cost. So it, you know, I think if you have that sort of vision, yeah. it's it can be very clear. And the great thing about something like that is everybody can get behind it. Everybody knows yeah. what the end result is. And it's something I must add to my list of things to look for. We've been talking a lot about one on one with with individuals. You you said there's three things to get the best out of each individual. Are you teachable? Can you cope under pressure? And have you got the right attitude? Can you talk about that? I mean, how do you get the best out of people? And are you teachable? I love this concept. Well, that was, there's three. You, I actually, I, I, I think you, you heard me speak that day and I spoke about those three. There's, I actually have six. Oh, right. I have six. <laughs> so there's, it's what I call the DNA of a champion. And I, I do talks around this. But I think there's six characteristics that I've kind of learned or picked up that when I'm, you know, coaching people, these are six I'm kind of taking off as we, as we go through. Or if, I, if I'm interviewing these anybody, these are the six characteristics I'm kind of looking for. So if you start with the three you just mentioned, teachable, um, this is in terms of, you know, I look at the six characteristics, what I call being a student. And this is what I said before about two-way process. This is about being teachable. And and, and this is absolutely, it, it, I, I use this word, sponge or a rock. Mm. You know, and sponge or rock is is my kind of coaching language for growth mindset, fixed mindset. So yeah. you're looking for people who are totally teachable, totally coachable, got a passion for their subject, you know, and they are prepared to actually do it on their own as well. They take personal responsibility for their own learning, you know, and this is this is massive. And this is probably one of the easiest things to actually spot and do. You know, most people, when they join companies or teams, they do these things automatic, automatically. They're trying to, you know, it's often people have been there the longest. They can drift into being what I call a rock, you know, and a, a rock is a rock between your ears, not a sponge between your ears. And you never want thing or another, Stephen, you, you can, you know, I kind of pride myself. I'd get on a plane tomorrow and go anywhere in the world if I thought it had a chance of me becoming better. Whatever, whatever job I'm doing in sport or business. Once you lose that passion, you're going to come second. So you're looking for people who are students, who are teachable, 
and the, and the sponges, you know. And if you get someone drifting into a bit of rock, you've got to sit them down and go, we've got to get you back. I need you back like you were a few weeks ago or months ago in terms of really putting into the, into the actual process. So that's number one. Number two, you talk about being working under pressure. Yeah, I think pressure is a great word. I call these people warriors. So a warrior is someone who can, who can form under pressure. Let's face it, anyone can do anything there's no pressure on. I think pressure is a great thing. That's what sets people apart. It's what champions love. They love pressure. But I don't think you're born with the pressure gene. I think it's something you can teach and coach people. I use this uh, an acronym, TCUP, which is T-C-U-P, which is thinking correctly under pressure. And, and again, I learned a lot of this from the, from the Royal Marines. Um, I'm from a service family. I went down to work with the Royal Marines. And you know, all their, you know, they're amazing athletes, amazing soldiers. You want to take them on all of those stuff. But their real strength, how they think, you know, in pressure situations. So they spend a lot of time in the classrooms going through scenario after scenario after scenario, trying to really role play the whole whole thing. And that's what that's, what that's about. It's is can you predict? And that's the key thing. So being a student, teachable, sponge and rock is all about today, what you do today. What you do tomorrow is all about being a warrior, pressure and thinking correct under pressure and trying to predict or anticipate what could happen. That's what champions do. Again, you've got to document this and the whole thing. Third one is um, attitude. Um, and I, I think, again, a bit like pressure, attitude is a great word. I mean, I can just skip over this. I mean, can we get that? It's in most languages, but I break attitude down into 10 words, 10, sorry, 10 different areas, which are all coachable, all measurable. I can speak about each one of them for about 30 minutes hmm. each. Um, you know, and let's face it, you know, most of us don't have a choice about coming to work. We've always got to go to work and make make a living, but we do have a choice about how we turn up for work in terms of our attitude, you know, and I, I get, um, well, I won't, I won't tolerate for people who've got a bad attitude because I want people around me who are energizers, not energy sappers, and starts with you, and that's about having the right attitude. So they're, the, they're the, the three you've mentioned there. But before that, we start off with um, something I call talented. And again, you know, be very, very clear. You, you can't take people off the street and put them into your investment world or into my business or, or sporting world. So you've got to have the talent. But again, my favorite line there is talent alone is not enough. It's how you leverage that talent. And, and that's absolutely key. So, you know, talent's one of the, the fourth characteristics. Um, I'm going to make sure I learn all these six now. The, six, the fifth one is what I, what I call being an intrapreneur as opposed to an entrepreneur. I don't know if you ever heard the term entrepreneur. No. An, in, an entrepreneur is like an entrepreneur, but it's working for big companies. So it's like you know, in investment banking world, you probably work with maybe big organizations. There's absolutely no reason why you can't be an, an entrepreneur within a, a big company. So yeah. an, an entrepreneur is all about loving change thinking, loving these words, you know, throwing away, not being stuck in your ways of doing things. And it doesn't matter if you, work, if you work for a small startup company where you tend to have entrepreneurial thinking as opposed to being an entrepreneur. I shared a floor, speaking floor, to a great lady called Sahara Shimi. She was the founder of the Coffee Republic. I just took copious notes listening to her. She just spoke about, you know, started this thing from tiny business. And she said, I used to think success was, um, you know, not being called a small business anymore. I now realize success is keeping that small business mindset can be keeping that entrepreneurial thinking in a big organization like the Coffee Republic. And that's a strength or a weakness. And that's what I call entrepreneur. And the last one, I've got all six, is what we call, it's just, a, it's just called a team player. You know, champion individuals are good team players and they know what being a team player is all, all, all about. So they're the six characteristics that I kind of look at with, with people to be champions. And I, I promise you, I'd be totally and utterly confident I'd talk to anyone on this call. And if, I, if they scored very high in those six areas, they'd be doing a great job on what they actually do. But they're all coachable, they're all measurable, and how you, take, how you take people to be champion individuals in sport or business. So they're my six characteristics of, of champions. It's fascinating. You did some really unusual things when you were a coach. I love the one about changing the shirts at halftime. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, there's always these great ideas. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I was, uh, we, uh, we had a, I hired a guy called Humphrey Walters to join the England rugby team. And I, again, I heard him speak. And he is this guy who did this around the world yacht race. It's called the BT Global Challenge all those years ago. And basically, you have a, you have a like, there's about, I don't know, about six boats, and every boat has one professional captain. Then you have 11 amateurs, and you all go around the world on a, a race. I mean, you can imagine that, including if there's roaring 40s, you know, in South America. And it's a proper, proper race. So he, he, you know, and you do it about three or four months. I mean, it's scary stuff, but it's Absolutely. one professional crew. And he, he did this and talked about it. And I listened to him speak, it was fascinating. So I got hold of him afterwards, which again, just listened to other people. And he knew nothing about rugby. And I said, I want to, I want you to come in, listen and work with me. He'd sit in the back of the room, keep out the way. But I want you to have a look at what, we, what we're doing. And honestly, he came up with such many good ideas. And and it's when you look back now, you just look at yourself and you think you're quite bright and you just sometimes you're probably not. We were all the all the stats were coming through quite simply that we were playing better in the first half than the second half. It was as simple as that. So part of me, when I see all this stuff coming through, I was going, well, I'm quite pleased. At least we're preparing well our first half. You know, and I was like, okay, what are we doing doing in the second half? We start to analyze that. And he just shouted out of the back of the room. So what do you do at half time? We kind of looked at him. We never really thought about that. He said, what are you doing at half time? So I, anyway, I, so I took him aside and we said, what, what are you on about? He said, what are you doing at half time? Because obviously, if, you, if you're starting the game properly, there's obviously something going wrong at half time because surely the second half should be like the start of the first half. And he just came up with this idea. He said, you know, when you start the game at, at Twickenham, you know, 85,000 people, you're playing France, say, you know, just massive national anthems, all the hype and the blood, all your, your players are looking gleaming, brand new kit, everyone looks fantastic and national anthems and bosh you where you go and you play well. Second half, look at you. You we all kind of wander out the changing room. <laughs> the referee blows his whistle. We all come out the changing room. You look a mess. He did, and he said to me, literally, why don't you change your kid at half time? Honestly, I looked at him and dismissed him as an idiot. I said, don't be stupid. We've never done that in the whole history of rugby, ever. No one's ever changed. He said, well, you've got to get the mindset. This is now not a two-half game. It's a one-half game. You know the score. But we've got to start the way we start the first half. And, of course, I just started laughing. <laughs> I remember it. I was driving home that night thinking, you know, that's genius. That could be absolutely brilliant. So when I first showed that to the players, I said, I've got this idea. You know, I've got this great idea. Of course, it has nothing to do with me. And... Um, I just said, what we're going to do, we're going to try it. And I didn't debate this with them. This was not, this was not the kind. I said, but I, I, want to, I want them to understand. When you give them half time, there'll be a brand new shirt, shorts. We leave the socks and boots. because all, all you get to do is take your shirt and socks off. So I want to get your mindset to start the game again. They all looked and they started laughing as well, going, that, that's ridiculous. We've never, <laughs> never done it. It was such a big thing, this. And, the, and they literally said, that's one of your crazy ideas again. That's, it's not crazy. We've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to try this. But when I said to them, but we also, guys, remember, that means you get two rugby shirts to take home instead of one. That was it. <laughs> it was yeah, done. sold, done yeah. deal. And the first time we did it, we were playing against France, and the commentator was amazing because I think we'd probably tipped him off a bit. We came out just like we came out the first half, gleaming white. And the, and the French came out with a bit of a rabble, dirty shirts all over the place. And the guy on the commentator says, well, look at England. They mean business. They're ready to go the second half. And, just called, and we called it second half thinking. And then we started to get everything we do at half time. But yeah, it, it didn't come from me. It came from Humphrey. And it was such, it needed someone from the outside to look at what we're doing. So well, why don't you change your shirt? And now we put a, a warm towel in there. So we only got 10, 15 minutes max. So the first two minutes is absolute silence. Everyone takes the shirts and shorts, you know, change the kit, towels, towels down, gets, takes on some food and some, some liquid, whatever you've got. And we, that was like the first two minutes. But, just one idea. And then what you find is great. What happens next? Everyone's doing it. Other teams and now everyone's. But we start to lead on these things. 
And when you start to lean on them, then the players get great confidence in what you're doing. That we're, we're not doing this for gimmicks. We're doing this because of the real reason. And our second half improvement started to improve. We started to really look at our first 10 minutes. What do we do? How do we play? Can we start the second half 10 minutes like we start the first half 10 minutes? And, I mean, it's such a stupid thing, but did it work? Yes. And this is from taking external input from people that don't have any skill or knowledge, yeah. which I, I, I find quite fascinating. You even said in, in one of the books that you had a hedge fund manager come yeah. down to watch you train yeah. and give you some advice afterwards. So what was, do you remember? <laughs> yeah, of course. It was a hedge fund manager. He's probably my best friend. In fact, he's my best friend. This guy called Clive, another Clive, a guy called Clive Pegram. And um, I used to invite all sorts of people like Clive Pegram just because they were, they were mates. And um, just to, you know, they loved it. Can you imagine you coaching the rugby team? It's like Humphrey Walters, just to bring them in. You know, if you met someone like you, I'd say, to, if I was coaching them now, I'd say, come and spend a day with me. You know, no, no, no deal here. But if you want to come spend a day or a couple of days, just, and we'll show you everything, by the way. There's nothing we can hide it. Nothing I want to hide. There's nothing we're going to hide at all. Just sit, sit in the back room, keep out of the way. Don't go gaga when Johnny Wilkinson walks in, our superstar player. Keep out of the way. And, you know, but I'd love to know your thoughts afterwards. And I promise you, there's never been anybody I've brought in who didn't take it really seriously. And everybody would always come up with, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And th that's, that's all I did. And I loved it because these were mates of mine. But you sat in the back of the room because they thought it was a huge privilege to be in and they took it really seriously. You know, and yeah, that's Clive. I was a hedge fund manager. He, he was he was some sort of fund manager. I wouldn't even know who he worked for now because that was a long time ago. But he's still my best friend. We live in the same village together and he's a big, big rugby fan. But no more than that, he's a fan. Like, like I'm a fan of, you know, probably what he does. I'm a fan of investment people. And you flew to Israel. Yeah. T tell us that story because that was fascinating. I could talk of hours on this. This was just one of the, one of the best things. I've, um, just to set the scene, I, in my leasing company, we did a lot of leasing for a company called LNX. They're a big computer company in, in North London. And their boss was a guy called Michael Spiro, who, who was a good friend of mine. And, and basically, I had the blue Michael Spiro rang me up and said, look, I've just met this guy called Yudar Shanir. He's this Israeli guy, works out Tel Aviv. He's, he's ex-special forces for the Israeli armed forces. But he's divine. He divine this software program that measures winning. Can I'm on the phone to Michael. Going, what do you mean? And he said, No, you you plan a joystick and it measures winning. And he said, It may sound a bit far fetched, but it's well worth going to and see now. And um, Michael Spiro is also an Israeli guy from from Tel Aviv. So I go, well, Can I go and see him? He said, Yeah, I, I've teed it up. I think you should go and see him. And he's just and again a friend. So next thing I'm on this uh, LL plane to I've never been at Tel Aviv in my life and. It was just, even from the get-go, I'll tell you a funny experience. Didn't really think about this. You know, suddenly I'm flying to Tel Aviv, which not many people go to Tel Aviv. And so I've, I've booked out, but I'm, I think I'm flying LL on there, and I'm flying business class. No one knew I'm doing this. The only person, sorry, the chief executive knew, the RFU, and my wife knew. So I'm literally, two, I'm flying to, and the first thing I noticed is that the, the plane was, you know, it was quite a late time. So you go to Heathrow, and you can't find where LL, because the security is huge. Yeah. So you can't find where they are. So eventually, I've kind of just, and I start to then first time think, what, what am I doing? What should I be doing this? So then we came up to the, the first check-in desk, and it was just a bench with two ladies at, and they're working for, obviously, LL, and they're the Israeli security forces. And of course, I've just walked up, and you've got to go past them, and they start to interrogate me then. And they really did interrogate me. And yeah, I, very and I, serious. Oh, massively serious. And they've got my computer out. I'm doing this. Who's your Shania? And they're checking up all this, this stuff. 
Then I suddenly, suddenly realized in my, in my rucksack, so I was like dressed pretty casually in my rucksack, I've got a picture of me of England coach holding, you know, probably the Six Nations cover something or I'm holding something. And I've got his postcard, a signature card. So I've got to show him this. So I get this card out, shows this these two Israeli ladies. They say Israeli, she, she looks at this card, looks at me, just chucks it over her shoulder. <laughs> right, let's get back to business. We don't, I look so you can't do that. She just chucked this thing over her shoulder. That, anyway, so I went to go. I went to get on this plane. We get to we get to Tel Aviv, and I've spent three days literally in this guy's house called Yudar Shanir, and he he was just amazing. Again, honestly, Yudar never even heard of rugby. He's an Israeli guy, ex. Uh, he's a, uh, a pilot with them, but he had just recently left them, and he he's divined this bit. Of, and we started to work on all this sort of stuff. Anyway, the, the best line he just said to me, and I'll never forget it. He, he sat me down in his, in his house. Because he was a big made of Michael Michael Spiro, Melex, and he just said, "Okay, um, rugby, this game, rugby. What are the basics?" And honestly, I, I looked at him, and I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "What do you mean? What do I mean? What are the basics?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "The basics. What are the things in rugby you've absolutely got to get right?" And I'm, and he just interrupted me. He said, "Well, that's not a good start, is it? You're the England rugby coach. You don't even know what the basics are of rugby." And I couldn't answer him. I couldn't answer him. And I use that line for so many people now. And what his, his definition of basics are, he's causing the safety net of success, the safety net of success. What are the things that are absolutely non-negotiable that you've got to get right? And I, and I couldn't answer him. And I, I, and, I've, and I I just sat there feeling really stupid. And he said, well, that's a good start, isn't it? We've got, we, you know, so let's start to look at this. And I didn't know what the basics were. What, what, are, what, are, the, what are the things to win a game of rugby you've absolutely got to get right? So we, anyway, I went back and uh, did all this work with them. One of the first I sat down with all my coach teams and I looked at them and said, okay, guys, what are the basics? What are, and then no one could, and everyone's got different answers. And what, what do you got to do? And this is what I learned from, from Udar. The whole team's got to know what the basics are. And, and I mean, people on the, on, the, on the call, maybe not all follow rugby, but it became very, very simple. The basics in rugby were lineouts, scrums, and restarts. That was it. In other words, if you were going to win again rugby, you had to get your scrum right, yeah. your lineouts right, and your restarts. So just three things. That was it. If we scored really high in those three areas, we won the game. If we had our full team play, we won the game. So they're the things that are non-negotiable. So and, that, and I just learned this term from him, saying basics, basics, basics. And we and I've based on that, I completely changed the way I ran the whole team. Lineout, scrums, restarts. That's that's who you pick first. That's who you, you, you spend most money on. That's how you who you employ best coaches for. What are the basics of, of what's going on? And I'll tell you the final thing on the Yudar story. I've literally been in this guy's house for three days doing all this amazing stuff. He's an absolute genius, Yudar Shanir. He runs, and his, his, his company's called Winning. That's why I got my book from Winning. Oh, his, right. his company's called Winning. And um, he said to me after three days, I promise you, he just said to me out of the blue, he said, okay, let's go, um, let's go on to sightseeing tour. So I've gone, great. So literally stuck in his house for three days. So I, we get in his car and I thought we we're going to go around Tel Aviv and all this stuff. We drove for the same ages. We get into this, um, kind of security place and they're all talking you know I didn't understand what they're saying then we get says where are we going so we're going for a flight I said what do you mean we're going for a flight he said we're going for a flight and literally we drove up this little plane literally the size of this office this little plane two man plane and I've like an idiot said to him who's flying it he said well I am because he's still part of the Israeli security force and all this stuff so next thing I'm sitting behind him in this little plane and we're, we're taking off and I'm just I, I mean, we're taking off bosh we take off so we've, we've been flying for about 10 minutes, and I just start laughing. He said, why are you laughing? What's funny? And I said, look, 
we're now flying over the Golan Heights where we're flying. We're going to get shot down. We are going to get shot down. And the front page news of the Times is going to be England rugby coach shot down over the Golan Heights. No one has got a clue why I'm here, what I'm doing. And I, I don't even know you can fly this plane. He starts laughing. He said, actually, that is quite funny. And by the way, it could happen. Oh. <laughs> and I just laughed him head off. But I just, again, it was either my strength or weakness. One idea from Michael Spiro, have to do it, get on the plane, go and see him. And he obviously made a massive impact on me just in terms of really understanding what was important. I know you speak to so many businesses today when I do my kind of coaching stuff. I said, what are the basics? What things you got to get right? And if your whole team can't answer them by that, boom, 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 you're not a, you're not a team. And that's what you got to focus on. And he calls them the the secrets of success are your basics. And got to get those right, then everything else is a bonus. Fascinating. And you also employed a, a principle of critical non-essentials. Yeah. What, what are those? Critical non-essentials I learned from, a, a, uh, when I worked in Australia for Xerox, I, I learned from this guy, from a guy called Paddy Lund. If you look at Paddy Lund, he's wrote a series, series of books, but he's, he's he wrote this great book called Building the Happiness Center of Business by Dr. Paddy Lund. And quite simply, he's a dentist who completely and utterly transformed the way he ran a dental practice. And it, I, I advise anyone on this call to get that book. It's fantastic. Because what, what drives you crazy when you read this book, it's so simple, so obvious. And you go, why doesn't every dentist do that? Why can't you make going to dentists be a lot, lot of fun? If you read a second book or another book called Critical Non-Essentials, CNEs, as he calls them, C-N-E, C-N-E, apostrophe S. And quite simply, they're, they're what it says on the tin. They're, 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 they're critical, but they're not essential. You're essential, built, if we put, put Udar and Paddy together, Udar is all about the essentials, the basics. These things we've got to get right. So he would say to you, the dentist in, in Australia, you know, I, I, can't, I know I'm going to fix your teeth well, but I can't say to you, I, I can't fix my teeth any better than this guy or this guy. We're all, we're all the same. We're all good dentists. What I can say you will enjoy coming to see me far more than going to see these other guys in terms of what you experience walking into his dental practice. So they're critical, but they're not essentials. The essentials are things you've got to get right, which are your basics. He went big time on the critical non-essentials in terms of literally when you go in, there's like a coffee shop. You know, the first thing you're offered is a cup of coffee. When you're thinking you have your, your teeth done in about three seconds or five seconds or five minutes, sorry. So he offers you food and coffee and all this stuff because he says, you know, what happens in most people go to the dentist? You spend the last, the previous half hour trying to scrub off 30, uh, six months of plaque and that. And he said, we clean your teeth for you. So we want you to come have some foods. You have a thing called the happiness half hour where he's just got things. You walk into this room about the size of this room and he'll have your, your favorite magazine there, your favorite newspaper there. And he wants you to relax for half an hour and have some, you just downtime. He's done all the homework. He just makes going to the dentist fun. He wrote a book about it, and it was two books, Building the Happiness End of Business, but then this one, The Critical Non-Essentials. There's literally hundreds of critical non-essentials. And you go, why doesn't everyone just do this? And this is about change thinking, about being entrepreneurial thinking, not entrepreneurial thinking. So that was the book about critical non-essentials, and it's absolutely brilliant. Any other books you like, you recommend? Oh, I read a lot of business books. They're, they're just, just recently, um, there's a, a really, uh, one of the top guys in KPMG, works over in Silicon Valley with Alex Holt. Uh, I don't know his exact, well, I do know his exact title. He's, he's head of IT for KPNG on a worldwide basis. He wrote his great book called Outpacers, O-U-T-P-A-C-E-R, which I've just finished reading. And, you know, I feel very privileged that he's, he, in the book, calls me an outpacer. And I, I obviously read the book and did the forward to it as well. An outpacer is, is somebody who, who fundamentally, you know, if they think they're right, can break down doors, go through orthodox thinking, and certainly in the sporting world, there's so much you've got to do to be successful. You, you can't believe what the, the barriers you put in. 
but outpace, as they call them, just break through tradition, they break through history because they think they're right. And um, it's a huge compliment to call it outpacer. So I recommend anyone, anyone to read that book. And it is what you have to be to be the top of any business, investment banking or whatever. Um, and outpacer is, is, is leading and really not being not being scared as the outcomes. I mean, you, you're so convinced that you're right, you've got to go with it. Brilliant. Listen, that's been fantastic. It's been so interesting um, talking to you. I'm really, really grateful. Where will people find you? Outside of Cookham, where I live. <laughs> not, not everyone's invited to my house like the players. <laughs> but um, no, just my website, Clive at CliveWoodward.com. Is, is my, is, or just go to my, just look at me up on, you'll find my website on there. Oh, we'll link the website in the show notes. Yeah. Clive, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I started that podcast badly. Rose, my brilliant sound engineer, was off with COVID and I had to set the cameras rolling myself. And of course, I had a problem with one. I could see Sir Clive looking at me thinking, this guy hasn't prepared. And I was embarrassed. He's not someone you want to let down like that. And that, I think, is a secret to success. He's someone you wouldn't want to disappoint. My takeaways were that investors and business people can learn a huge amount from sport, that preparation is absolutely mission critical and that you should always be learning and striving for those small incremental improvements. I hope you enjoyed it and please do let me know. I'd love to hear suggestions for other guests in parallel fields that we might all learn from. Thank you.